Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. The Ephesian Epistle. By James Boyd. Ephesians Chapter 1. In the Epistle to the Colossians the Apostle Paul speaks of himself as Minister of the Glad Tidings, and also as Minister of the Assembly. There was a sense in which he could not be viewed as a Minister of either the Glad Tidings or of the Assembly. The Gospel that he preached he had directly from the Lord by revelation. He says to the Galatians, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, Galatians chapter 1 verses 15 to 16. He was pre-eminently the minister of the gospel, Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, and alone minister of the church, verse 25. Jesus as the son of God was the subject of his testimony. Peter, who was sent to the circumcision, proclaimed him as the Messiah, the son of David, in whose presence here among the Jews were fulfilled and given to the people the promises made to the fathers, but never, as far as we read, presenting him as son of God, though in this character he confessed him on earth, Matthew chapter 16 verse 16. But when Saul was converted, straightway he preached Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the son of God, Acts chapter 9 verse 20. We have Peter's testimony in Acts 2 and 10, and in neither passage is he said to speak of Jesus as the Son of God. But when we come to the testimony rendered by Paul among the Gentiles, chapter 13 verses 32 and 33, at once he announces him as the Son of God. And this involves adoption for us Galatians chapter 4, that is, the position of sons of God. There is another word used for son which involves begotten of God, kuios, but the word translated adoption, kuiosesia, does not, though we could not be in the place of sons unless we were begotten. When we speak of our being begotten of God we have no previous history to this act of God's sovereign will. But as regards the truth of adoption, it means for us a transfer from Adam to Christ, and this is early referred to in this epistle to the Ephesian. In the epistle to the Romans we have the gospel as preached and taught by Paul, and in this to the Ephesians we have the assembly as administered by the same apostle, to whom this administration was committed. Therefore he does not associate another with him in the writing of these two epistles, as he does in his address to each of the other assemblies. Romans sets before us the intervention of God on our behalf for our deliverance from everything that held us in bondage, our sins, sin, law, and all else that fettered us in order that we might be free to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, our intelligent service. In the teaching of Romans we do not get our position in the heavenlies. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and await adoption, which here involves being in the image of God's Son, Romans chapter 8 verses 23, 29 and 30. But we are not viewed as taken away from connection with earth. The kingdom is before us, and the glory in which we shall have part when it is revealed. But in Ephesians we have operations of God for the fulfillment of his own eternal counsel. Another world than this one, I might say, another creation, opens up before the vision of our soul. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And that is, according as he has chosen us in him before the world's foundation, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This was his purpose before the ages of time. Whatever may have been allowed to come in afterwards only served to the fulfillment of these counsels. Everything must serve to the end that the all-wise and all-powerful Creator has in view. The ruin of this earth before it was formed as a dwelling place for man, the ruin of the man for whom it was prepared, the introduction of this present fallen Adamic race, sin, darkness, death and misery. All must serve to the one glorious end, the bringing to pass the glorious conception of the eternal God. And with this the epistle we are considering is occupied. In the ways taken by God to accomplish his great thoughts we were in Adam before we came to be in Christ, but in the purposes of God we were in Christ before we came to be in Adam.
We were chosen in Christ before the world's foundation. We were to be holy, and this involved the knowledge of good and evil, and this was acquired by the fall. We were not to be innocent beings in intelligent relationship with our Creator, but in the position of sons before the face of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, able to call God Father. Not in the earthly head, Adam, but in the heavenly, Christ, not in the natural, but in the spiritual. And all the wealth of blessing that is ours, we inherit by the good pleasure of His will, and to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has taken us into favor in the Beloved. Indeed all his activities have their source in his own sovereign will, apart from any claim on our part for this intervention, for claim we have none. And all these activities are in perfect righteousness and consistency with all the attributes of God, and also with his nature and character. The blood of the Beloved has been shed for our redemption, and now we have redemption, as far as forgiveness of offenses goes, and this according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace is seen in the death of the Beloved on our behalf and the glory of his grace will be seen in the day when the full effect of that grace comes to light in manifested display. The riches of his grace he has now caused to abound toward us in all wisdom and intelligence. He has given us intelligence to enter into the counsels of eternal wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will concerning the great work that he has set himself to accomplish in Christ. And the part that we shall have with him in that day, the day that is called, the dispensation of the fullness of time. The substance of all that was foreshadowed in past dispensations shall be taken up in Christ. And then it will be apparent that Christ was the one who was ever before the mind of God, and that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Aaron, David, and Solomon, were but figures of him that was to come. What was set forth in them will be taken up by him. They could not continue by reason of failure, and because of the weakness and unprofitableness of the various systems in which they served during the probation of Adam's fallen race. But in that day it will be manifested that Christ is the one capable of bearing up the pillars of the moral universe, as from the beginning he has borne up the pillars of the material universe. Everything in heaven and earth will be headed up in the Christ, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated to be to the praise of his glory. And the pledge of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit, by whom we have been sealed to the day of redemption. Having said before the saints that which God had before the foundation of the world purposed to bring to pass for his own glory and the glory of his beloved Son. And for the eternal blessing of those who were yet to be brought into being, but who were present to his eternal mind, creatures in the position of sons. And in the love of which his own Son was the alone all-worthy object, and also having made known to them the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that is, in the administration of the fullness of times to head up all things in the Christ, and now sealing all who believed the gospel of their salvation with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle then prays for them. And first of all, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us ward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Here Christ is viewed as man. And hence we have God said to be, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In another place, chapter 3 verse 14. He is said to be the, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he is viewed in the intimacy of divine relationships. The Son, the Creator and Upholder of all things, and the center of all the counsels of eternal love. But as Father of glory, it is God viewed as the author of all the glory that shall light up the eternal universe. He, by whose wisdom and power this glory shall fill the new heavens and the new earth, is the only one who can give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself. 
which is necessary for us to have, if we are to enter intelligently into these things that are brought before us, so that they may lay hold of the affections of our hearts, and form us morally according to his desire for us. As to the desire of the heart of the Apostle for us, he speaks of three things which he desires us to know. And first, the hope of his calling. All our spiritual blessings are in the heavenlies in Christ. We have many mercies in our pilgrimage to our home on high, but our spiritual blessings, which are all eternal, are in heaven. He has also called us to sonship, holy and blameless before him in love. The hope of such a calling can only be known in the measure in which we know him who has called us. Our appreciation of his calling can only be in the degree in which we appreciate the revelation which he has made of himself. Hence it is by the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that we can enter into the intelligence of those infinite purposes of God. May our souls be saturated with the radiance of this glorious calling. Next the Spirit of God would have us know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It is in the saints that he shall take his inheritance. We shall understand this better if we understand the way in which God would have taken his inheritance that was given to Abraham and to Abraham's heirs on the line of Isaac and Jacob. The patriarch was called out of yore of the Chaldees to a land that God would give to him and to his descendants. But when he came into it the Canaanite was there, and for four hundred years held it in possession. The time for taking it in possession had not yet come, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, Genesis chapter 15 verse 16. Therefore the heirs of the promised inheritance were compelled to be strangers in a land that was not theirs until the fourth generation. Then God brought them back to the promised land. But the end of that was that God had to scatter them because of their iniquities, and they lost the land, and their loss of it meant God's loss of it also. Had they remained faithful the land would have been theirs forever, and therefore it would have been still under the hand of God. But in a coming day he will bring them back out of the countries into which for their sins they have been driven. They shall be purified by judgment and by grace, and the remnant that is left of them shall, under the reign of the Christ of God, inherit the land, and teach the nations the law of Jehovah. But this shall not be apart from the saints of this present dispensation who are joint heirs of Christ and inherit all things with him. The heavenly Jerusalem shall be light to the Jews, and to the spared nations of the earth, and the leaves of the tree of life shall be for their healing. It shall be the metropolis, the light and the glory of the whole peaceful universe, as the earthly Jerusalem shall be the metropolis of the world. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints shall be seen in the new heavens and new earth. We are to understand the riches of the glory of this now. The next thing is the exceeding greatness of his power to us ward, manifested first in the resurrection of Christ from among the dead, and setting him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, above every principality and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name named, not only in this age, but also in that to come, and putting all things under his feet, and giving him to be head over all things to the assembly, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the power that wrought in Christ, and which works now in us to give us part with him in the glorious position that he now occupies, and which in eternal purpose was given us in him before the ages of time. The whole redeemed creation must eventually be ordered according to the counsel of the Godhead, counseled before he began his works of old. Nothing shall be altered, for when his works are all finished everything shall be as he intended it should be before he began. In chapter 2, we find that same power moved and put into operation by his own sovereign love, not a love of pity or compassion, but free, sovereign, and eternal love. Love that would not turn away from us in loathing on account of the loathsome condition in which we lay, but in spite of that abominable state, for, his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, quickened us together with Christ, and raised us up together, and made us sit down together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. 
that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Only think of that sight which met the eye of God when he looked down upon this world upon which he was going to operate for the blessing of his creature, and for his own eternal glory. It is not only that his authority had been set at naught, his laws broken, his prophets slain, but the son of his love, the last and greatest exhibition of his infinite love to men. Dead through the violence of this world's princes, and ourselves morally dead and corrupt. Yet this is just the quarry out of which he was minded to bring stones for the holy temple, the spiritual house, where sacrifices would be offered up acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What power could act in such a corrupt state of things? Not the highest creature in the universe. But God, ah, what about him? Few among men take account of him. Are we to leave him out? Are we to devour with fire a ruined world, and throw the book of God's counsels into the burning? No, we shall bring him in with shouts of joy. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, quickened us with the Christ, raised us up, and seated us in him in the heavenlies. Let us ascribe all glory and honor to him. Satan has been defeated. He is subtle and presumptuous. He affected the ruin of the first man, and in the career of the descendants of that man we see the extent of the ruin into which he fell. Man is dead, dead even while he lives in his sinful flesh, dead to God, though very much alive to sin and Satan, dead while taking a very active part in the affairs of this world. Dead while ruled by the prince of the power of the air, doing that which the flesh and mind desire to do in this ruined condition. Men in this world are alive in their sins, in their self-will, corruption, and rebellion against God, but dead to him, not a pulse of real life moving in their whole moral being. But has he whose purpose is to bring many sons to glory been defeated? It is clear that God cannot maintain the creature in active rebellion against his beneficent sway, and give him license to corrupt forever his fair creation. Must he then destroy the human race, and confess himself unable to give effect to his eternal purpose of blessing? Must he confess that he has been outmaneuvered by his implacable enemy? Far be the thought, he who makes the wrath of man to praise him, and restrains the superabundance, can in his infinite wisdom make the puny efforts of every rebel creature serve to the fulfillment of his eternal decrees. No sane person could ever suppose the Creator overreached by the creature. All his creatures exist for his service. Elect angels have been upheld in their primal perfection, and others have been allowed to fall from their first estate, and for these we do not read of recovery. Man made in the image and likeness of God fell, and brought into existence a fallen race, but to these mercy has been manifested, and a way of salvation devised. But if preserved in their first and perfect condition, or if allowed to fall, all is for the wise purpose of God, and all are made to serve to the fulfillment of the purpose of eternal love. He does not bring about the fall of any one of his creatures, but where a creature is placed on the ground of responsibility, obliged to fulfill whatever obligations are imposed upon him. He cannot complain if by the exercise of his own will he finds himself a ruined sinner. By his activities God makes himself known in his own creation. His love has come to light in the death of his Son, who by the grace of God gave himself for us, his judgment of sin in the cross of Christ, his wrath has yet to come fully to light. But whether it be wrath or judgment of sin, or condemnation of the sinner, nothing can manifest it more than can the cross, when he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And bore the judgment of it in the three hours of thick darkness, a judgment which brought from the heart and lips of the holy victim that heartrending cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The power that by the eternal love of the heart of God was set in motion in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and in placing him in the highest place in the universe, does not rest until we who were dead in sins have been quickened, raised up, and made to sit down together in Christ Jesus. 
that he might display in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is in this way he has recovered us for himself. In his purpose we were in Christ before the foundation of the world, and in him where he is glorified, at the center of a universe designed by his unfathomable wisdom and perfected by his power. The spring of both his activities and wisdom is the unspeakable love of his heart. The day is coming in which we shall see all these purposes fulfilled, and we ourselves at the center of that world of glory with the Son of his love, as we can now be said to be in him. Then shall he have taken the inheritance in his saints.